Welcome to Eric Hurst's Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Hey everyone, I'm Eric Hurst and I'm back with another episode of the Training for Climbing podcast. This episode, number 31, the focus is hangboard training, something that I believe the majority of climbers should be doing at least at some times throughout the year to improve not only muscle strength, but tendon strength to to make for healthier tendons. A fingerboard can actually be a very useful tool. Of course, if you misuse a hangboard, well, then it can lead you down the path of injury. And for a beginner or for a youth climber, it's not the right training tool, not yet. And so these are some of the issues I'm going to get into in this podcast, kind of give you a a well-founded understanding of the importance of hangboard training, but also give you a framework to work with to determine just what amount of hangboard training and what type of hangboard training is appropriate for you. And I'll even get into a bit of the research that's been done on uh, finger training and more specifically on the biomechanics of the fingers and kind of what muscles control different grip positions. Because one of the reasons the hangboard is such a great tool is because it allows you to target different grip positions. And so if you have a weaker grip position, you can isolate it and train it. And so I guess the goal of this podcast is to give you a better understanding of what's going on in your forearms when you're gripping on and training on a hangboard. And so those are some of the fun and interesting topics that we're going to get into in this podcast. But first, let me tell you a little bit about a new hangboard that finally hit the market late last month. It's called the Ultimate Board. And it's produced by Nicros, and it's been a long-term project for me to, to bring a new hangboard to the market. You know, I've been hangboard training off and on for more than 30 years. That dates back to the first hangboards in the late 1980s. In the mid-1990s, more than 20 years ago, I actually designed my first of a couple of hangboards for Nicros. And... Uh, I've learned a lot over the years about what makes a hangboard good. And yes, it is somewhat subjective and there's, you know, personal taste to what you like. You know, some people prefer training on wood, especially if they're an advanced climber. Oftentimes they like that low friction surface. Whereas a newer climber with somewhat weaker fingers can actually benefit from a little more texture. And certainly if you're someone that tends to have sweatier skin or trains in a warm environment, then uh, the texture that is often found on a plastic hangboard can be better. Uh, But it really depends on the situation. And so this board is indeed a plastic hangboard. It it comes out of the box with a fair amount of texture on it. But of course, you can take sandpaper and remove the texture and really personalize and comfortize the board to your liking. And that's one of the nice things about a plastic board is that you can really change the texture. You can scale it down to your personal liking and really make it your own hangboard. Okay, so finally, just let me tell you a little bit about the types of holds that are on the ultimate hangboard. Uh, Across the top, there's a nice, comfortable pull-up jug, about shoulder width apart. So, you know, pull-ups are something that you'll typically want to do if you're training at home as part of a warm-up and even as part of your pull muscle training. And so there's a nice solid set of jug holds that you can use and have uh, basically zero texture on them. 
Inside of those two pull-up holds is a deep ledge hold. It's really a full finger depth ledge. It's approximately eight centimeters deep or three and a half inches or so. And uh, with that ledge hold, you can kind of mimic how you would rest on a jug hold uh, outdoors on a, on a big cliff. It even if you concentrate on relaxing your distal finger joint and pulling your palm in against the board, you can even recruit the lumbrical muscles a little bit. And then center of the board is a sloper hold, which you can grab as a deep sloper, two or three pads deep, or my personal favorite, just a one pad deep sloper. Uh, and by the way, you'll also find in the middle of the board at the top, a little slot that you can stick in a smartphone. So if you're using an app or a timing system, you can uh, slot it in there and actually look at it while you're training. Across the middle part of the board, well, on either side, about shoulder width apart, are a series of progressive edges. And this is something that Ava Lopez popularized several years ago and something that I've been writing about for several years now uh, in my books about uh, the benefits of progressive edge training and minimum edge training. And so my board has just five different size edges, the smallest being six millimeters, then eight, 10, 14, and 20 millimeters deep. So the 14 and 20 millimeter deep edges are nearly first pad or one pad deep crimp holds. And those are what you'll probably do most of your training on on this board. It's what I use, uh, the 14 and 20 millimeter deep holds for uh, weight added training, where I'm training with oftentimes up to 100 pounds added from my harness. But that you know depends on how strong you are and where you are on your training curve, how much weight you'll want to add. That's something that you have to suss out over time. You don't want to do weighted training on micro holds, like six or eight millimeter edges. Uh, you may dry fire off of them and get hurt, and it's just too painful to do. Those smaller edges are more for minimum edge training or for just occasional testing, you know, getting used to what it feels like to hang on a six millimeter edge because you'll probably have to do it outside at some point. And so you, you do need to train it a little bit indoors though. It's painful. You know, those small crimp holds on a hangboard, if they're really gonna be usable, they need to have a pretty sharp edge. And so by design or by necessity, that sharp edge results in a hold that's not so comfortable to hang on. If you really sloped it, well then, good luck hanging on a six millimeter sloper. That's very hard to do. And again, you'd probably find yourself dry firing off the holds and that's not a good thing. You could potentially hurt a tendon and it's, it's no fun to train that way. So the smallest edges, unfortunately, do hurt a bit to train on, though you can comfortize them a little bit with sandpaper. The center part of the board, there are four slots designed for one arm training. There's a 10, 20, 30, and 40 millimeter deep hold. These are great holds if you're a, if you're a really strong climber. You can do one arm pull-ups on them. You can do one arm training on them. Uh, my two sons, who are super strong, can hold a dumbbell in their free hand and do a one-arm hang in the 20 millimeter hold. And it's a great way to develop elite level strength. If you're not so strong like me, um, you can hang one arm on perhaps the 30 or 40 millimeter deep hold kind of as a gateway into one arm training, or you can hang a little sling uh, below the hangboard and do assisted one-arm training, which is quite popular. It's a good transition from two-arm training to, to one-arm training, where you kind of just hold on to or pinch a, a sling and remove just enough weight from your body so that you can hang by one hand 
on one of those middle slots, like the 10 or 20 millimeter deep hold. And then finally, across the bottom of the board is a row of pockets. There are three different depth two finger pockets. You'll find a pair that are 20 millimeters deep, 30 millimeters deep, and 50 millimeters deep. So you can kind of train all the different teams or combinations of two finger pockets in those holds. They're fairly rounded. Uh, again, you'll probably want to sandpaper uh, the texture down a little bit so that at least where the skin wraps over the lip of the pocket, it's nearly friction-free. And then there's a set of monos, you know, deep monos, which are important for more advanced climbers to do some training on, not only to develop one finger strength, but it's also been shown to be a beneficial way to kind of stretch out and uh, train the, the muscles in the palm of your hand, the lumbrical muscles, it's called the quadriga effect in your palm, that can be injured if you do a lot of pocket climbing or monopulling. And so to train that at home in a controlled environment, you can reduce your injury risk of getting one of those little pesky palm uh, muscle injuries that can result from pulling monos. So it's a very complete board. About the only thing you can't train on the ultimate board is pinching. But I'm personally not a big fan of training pinches on a hangboard. It's like we spend enough time hanging on our shoulders that if you can train something in a different position, then do it. And pinches, I believe you can actually train a little more effectively by pinching weights at your side while standing up flat-footed on the ground in an upright posture. And, and pinching a block that's 10 or 12 centimeters wide with added weight hanging below. That's a different topic to get into in a different podcast. But I personally like training pinching standing up and then training the other grips while hanging. So there you have it, the Ultimate Hangboard. It is on sale currently, kind of a holiday season sale through December 24th, 2018 at nicros.com. Uh, if you stop by between now and then, you can take advantage of that discount after Christmas. I can't tell you exactly what the pricing will be. I have no control over that. I just designed the hangboard. Um, I'm not in charge of marketing or producing it. So visit nicros.com and uh, check out the hangboard. And uh, by the way, I'll be shooting some videos uh, kind of covering hangboard training protocols, little bite-sized videos to give you a few different ways how to use the ultimate board or whatever hangboard you choose to use. And there are several very good hangboards on the market. So I'm definitely not saying mine is the best. It's the one I like the best because I kind of designed it based on my years of training and research to what I think is a very useful design and platform for finger training at home. And in summary, I think pretty much every climber, with a few exceptions, should own a hangboard because it really is a valuable training tool, one that you'll use for many years to come. Okay, so that is kind of a good segue into where we can begin uh, this coverage of hangboard training. And hopefully I'll give you a little different look than what you've heard or read before when it comes to uh, hangboard training. I'm not going to drill down deeply into the detailed training protocols here. I did that back in podcast number 10. Uh, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that because there's 
close to an hour of instruction on very specific hangboard training protocols for training strength and endurance. Uh, and in the future, I'll do more on that. And as I mentioned, I'm going to do some training videos that will get into specific protocols. But I, I want to give you kind of a different angle that just kind of makes a little more educated on what we're training and some of the science behind hangboard training and some of the maybe unintended consequences of hangboard training. And so the place I want to start first and foremost is who should be using a hangboard? Well, I guess the easiest thing would be to outline who should not be using a hangboard because I think most climbers should to some degree be employing a hangboard as part of their training for climbing program. So the folks who probably shouldn't be touching a hangboard just yet, number one would be newbie climbers. People just arriving into the climbing gym, falling in love with the sport. For the most part, a hangboard would be a bad thing on day one or even on month one, and probably not until they have a year of consistent climbing under their belt would I introduce them to a hangboard. And here's why. First of all, climbing is a skill sport, and so that those first few months, the focus should be 100% on learning to move over stone or plastic if you're climbing indoors. And your fingers will get enough exposure to crimping and pulling and all the unique and novel grip positions of climbing and really to spread the wear and tear out over you know, a wide range of grips as indoor climbing does or outdoor climbing does, is a little safer approach than getting onto a fingerboard where you target specific grip positions and really hammer them. That's good for training when you become more advanced as a climber, but as a beginner, you want to kind of ease into the novel stresses that climbing is. And, you know, if you've never climbed before and if you've never lifted heavy weights before um, and Perhaps your fingers have never been subjected to the type of forces that climbing will. You know, if you play soccer, for instance, your hands aren't doing much. Um, or if you have sat at a keyboard or in school most of your life and not played a rigorous sport that utilizes your grip, your tendons just are not ready. The tendons adapt to climbing as much as the muscles do, and they do so at a much slower rate. So, it's really quite important in terms of injury avoidance to not rush into pushing too hard. And a hangboard, again, a very specific tool like hangboard training just isn't appropriate for a beginner. Now, the exception perhaps would be somebody who does have naturally strong hands because let's say they come into climbing with a background in weightlifting or powerlifting. And so they've been lifting heavy barbells for the past five or 10 years or however long well, their tenons, if you've done that type of activity in the past, are stronger, are literally thicker. You've had more tenon hypertrophy, that is, thickening and strengthening of the tenons and the pulleys in your fingers. So perhaps that type of person beginning to climb can dabble in hangboard training, though I, again, wouldn't recommend anything uh, too rigorous or too voluminous just yet. Um, and the other class of individuals that really I don't think should be touching a hangboard are youth climbers going through their growth spurt. You know, little kids who weigh almost nothing, you know, pre-puberty age, they, they rarely experience finger injuries or the types of injuries we think about 
that result from training. Of course, kids should be climbing for fun and just, you know, playing in the gym. And I don't think a young kid should even be on a rigorous training program. But is hanging on a hangboard every now and then or even on a campus board going to hurt an eight-year-old kid? Probably not. Their body is so light and pliable that it probably wouldn't hurt them. But again, what would be the point at that age, honestly? It's when kids get into their teenage years and start competing and start taking it seriously that they think they should be on a hangboard or campus board, or perhaps they're coached to be on a hangboard or campus board. And again, I'm not 100% against that, but every youth climber is different, and the decision should be made smartly by the coach or the parent and not by the kid because they just don't have the judgment to determine what is safe or not. They just see what other people in the gym are doing and think that they should be doing it. And uh, in particular, kids going through that growth spurt. For girls, it's often you know 10 to 13 or 10 to 14. Boys, it's a little later, maybe age 12 to 16. During that growth spurt, uh, the, the growth plates in the fingers can easily be injured and unfortunately are. The statistics are showing this is a a frighteningly common injury, not always diagnosed, but it's happening. And so I think kids in that growth spurt should really stay away from the hangboard. If they do any hangboarding, it should be in the open grip position, not crimping. Uh, And in fact, they should stay away from crimping as much as possible in, in terms of their regular climbing, their bouldering and roped climbing, because it's that crimp grip that is most injurious to the growth plates in that PIP joint. In any case, uh, beginners and climbers, uh, kid climbers going into their growth spurt years probably want to stay away from a hangboard. Otherwise, go for it. Intermediate climbers, advanced climbers, elite climbers, I think hangboard training should be one of those backbone activities. I'm not saying it's your main method of training, but it should be part of the picture. Uh, Again, an intelligently designed training program, that is key to get long-term results. If you're just kind of going through trial and error, as a lot of athletes do in their training, well, then your results will kind of be hit or missed. And so that's where being a thoughtful, self-aware self-coach or having a thoughtful, aware professional coach can be really helpful to help you see the big picture and design a program that's personalized and targeted to your specific needs. Because the right hangboard training program for you during the climbing season is completely different than what you should be doing for gains in the off-season. Okay, so moving on, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is what is a proper warm-up for hangboard training. Because one thing I've noticed, and honestly, I've been guilty of perhaps in the past or just as such a busy person, um, short on time, I've been guilty of, and that is rushing through a warm-up. You know, what is an appropriate warm-up for hangboard training? And I guess my opening advice would be to err on the side of doing too much warming up rather than too little. And here's why. A very interesting study, this was actually done more than 15 years ago by a researcher out of Switzerland, Schweitzer, and he imaged the fingers and uh, looked at the behavior of the tendon pulleys and the the flexor tendons uh, at different stages uh, of a warm-up or workout. And he noticed that the uh, tendon pulleys in your fingers, you know, those often injured A2, A4 pulleys that you hear about, 
they become more compliant as they warm up. In fact, they become on average about 30% more compliant over the course of a warm-up. And what he found is it takes about 120 climbing moves or hand moves to get the tissue temperature up and the synovial fluid flowing and to get those tendon pulleys compliant. And so this 30% increase in tendon pulley compliance during that warm-up is critical. If you get there before you enter into your heavy-duty hangboard training, that would be a very smart thing. Whereas if you do just a brief warm-up or no warm-up, you just jump on and start doing some near-maximal hangs, well, the tendon pulleys aren't going to be as compliant, and of course, you're more likely to, to injure them. Or perhaps even get micro-injuries that you're not aware of, you know, slight tears or slight uh, weaknesses in the collagen fibers that you don't know are happening, but that accumulates over time and then eventually precipitates one of those acute tears that you hear or that you feel that lay you up, unfortunately, then for months on end. And so a slow, progressive warm-up is the smart thing to do. Now, some people, to kind of err on that side of a long, progressive warm-up, do their hangboard training at the end of their workout. And again, that's something I've done at times if I just want to do a few hangs at the end of, say, a bouldering workout, a few near max weight hangs. Okay, that's fine. Or if I'm going to do maybe a couple sets of repeaters at the end of a uh, rope climbing session. Okay, that's probably fine. But if you're going to do a serious hangboard training program, one that is intended to really bring gains in finger strength or gains in the strength endurance of a specific grip, say like the two-finger pocket grip, well then, I think you need to target, you know, almost dedicate a workout to that and not just stick it at the end of a climbing gym workout. And so ultimately, it's going to depend on how much time you have available to how many days or hours per week you can dedicate to training. But I think if the main purpose of your workout is hangboard training, well, then I would recommend that you do it kind of as the middle main part of your workout. And so you do start off with an extended warm-up. Uh, if you're at a climbing gym, you might do three or four roped routes that are very submaximal but progressive. You're grabbing big holds on the first route, and then by the fourth route, you're grabbing you know maybe some first pad crimp holds. And through climbing those four routes, you get your 120 climbing moves in the bag to get the tendon pulley compliance up that average 30% so that you're warmed up and ready to go at it on the hangboard. Or if you're not in the climbing gym, you do some pull-ups, you do some, you know, really jug hold hangs and do some sets of repeaters on pretty deep holds, maybe using a pulley system, a counterweight system to deload some weight off your body, or even stand on a chair or have your feet on the edge of a hold. Be creative. Find ways to make it very easy to start and try to accumulate 120 hand movements or hangs that are easy, that aren't pumping you out to get through that warm-up process that probably should take you 20 or 30 minutes to get to the point where it's like, okay, I'm warmed up, I'm ready, my muscles are turned on. Now the main part of my workout is hangboard training. And that main part of the workout 
could be another 30 or 60 minutes. So this is not necessarily a short workout uh, if, if you're dedicating on, on hangboarding. Uh, there'll be a lot of rest involved in that 30 to 60 minutes because, for instance, if you're training maximum strength, you may only be hanging for 7 to 10 seconds at a time and then resting for a minute or two or three between hangs. And again, that gets into the subject of specific training protocols that I don't really want to visit now because I have enough other interesting stuff to talk about here. So in any case, get through that long progressive warm-up and then make hangboard training the primary part of your workout. Yeah, if you want to do a little bit more bouldering or roped climbing at the end, you could do that. But I really personally like the idea of dedicating a workout or two per week to hangboard training. And by the way, same thing goes for campus training. Instead of burying a couple of laps on the campus board somewhere in the part of your larger time at the gym, why not go to the gym and warm up and do a campus board workout. Uh, you know, these types of very specific high-end training on the campus board, on the hangboard, really are best treated as workouts on their own. And so for an advanced climber using that approach, you're probably doing two-a-day training, at least a couple days a week, where you might go into the gym in the morning and do some more aerobic-oriented climbing, uh, sub-maximal climbing on a rope or or on a tread wall, and then six hours later, return to the gym to do a hangboard session. Or maybe you come into the gym and do a nice slow warm-up and a strength session on the hangboard or a campus session in the morning, and then have a six or eight hour rest and come back in the evening and do a power endurance workout, like bouldering four by fours or laps on some short, steep routes. Again, that's kind of the art of program design that I'm not going to get into here, but more advanced climbers, I think, really do need to be doing some two-a-day training at certain times throughout the year. Beginners, probably not, because you really have to limit the stress on your finger tendons and give yourself a lot of time to recover more probably than you want to take if you're a passionate new climber. Really, I, I tell beginners in that first year or two, three or four days per week should you be weighting your fingers. That is it. If you're training or climbing and stressing the tendons in your fingers six days a week, that could be a problem, likely will be a problem, if not sooner than later. But here's the good news. As you accumulate climbing and training experience over the coming years, you will develop stronger, stiffer, and perhaps even slightly thicker tendons. Then you can start to go into things like two-a-day training and maybe weighting the, the, your fingers as many as five days a week. But even elite climbers, I think, need two days where they're not doing anything significant on their fingers so that, again, there's time for the muscles and tendons that are so heavily stressed in our sport to recover. Okay, so I'm going to go to the next part of this podcast, and I want to focus on specifically what grip position you use or train on the hangboard and how it affects the muscles in the forearms, the, what finger flexor muscles are used, and also the effects and the strains that it directs on the, the flexor tendons and the pulley tendons, because it does change quite dramatically depending on what grip 
position you are using. And I'll tell you, when I first read this research about a decade ago, it was surprising. I mean, it, it made sense, but it was surprising the big difference that the grip position you use makes on what muscle you're training in the forearms uh, predominantly and uh, the strains on the tenon pulleys, like the A2 pulley and the A4 pulley. Because, you know, if you're someone who's struggling with an injury in one of those pulleys, it's nice to know what grip positions might be safer to train than others uh, when you're kind of rehabbing things and trying to get back to 100%. So as a starting point, as we kind of dive into a little bit on biomechanics here, let's uh, first describe or, or name the bones in our fingers. From the end of your finger coming in towards the palm of your hand, there are three bones or three phalanx as they're called. Uh, the one that makes up the end of your finger, that first bone is the distal phalanx. And then you have the intermediate and then the one closest to your hand, the third bone moving inward is the proximal phalanx. And of course, those three bones have two joints. So the joint that is nearest the tip of your finger is the distal joint or the DIP joint. I guess let's just call it DIP. So when you hear DIP, you're thinking about that distal joint that is essentially hyperextended when you're crimping. It's bent backwards a little bit. Uh, whereas when you're grabbing uh, like a pocket open hand, that DIP joint is actually flexed. Uh, And then you have the middle joint, which is the one that can be the most problematic for climbers, is the PIP joint. And so that PIP joint is the one that when you're crimping is bent at somewhere around 90 degrees, give or take a few degrees. Okay, so let's talk about the different grip positions and then the amount of force that the different grip positions place on the tendons and the pulleys and which finger flexor muscles in your forearm are actually at work or doing the most work in the different grip positions because it does vary depending how you're grabbing a hold or how you're hanging on the hangboard. The finger flexor muscles are being used to different degrees depending on which grip position you're using. Okay, so first of all, um, the full crimp grip, that is when you're crimping down on on an edge and you have your thumb locked over your index finger, that full crimp grip is not something you ever want to train. You do need to be able to train thumb strength, but there are different ways to do that uh, with different pinching exercises. And uh, that full crimp or closed crimp grip is just not something you want to train. It it puts your uh, joints and tendons in a position that the forces are the greatest and injury risk is at its highest. Instead, what you want to train when you're doing crimp grip is what is called a half crimp. That's you kind of release that thumb off your index finger and your fingers, especially the two long fingers, the middle fingers, are still bent at about 90 degrees and your DIP joint may still be slightly hyperextended, but the angles are softened a little bit when you're in that half crimp position. And so that is one of the primary grip positions you do want to train on a hangboard. The other end of the spectrum, you might say, is the open hand grip or the sloper grip, as some people call it. And this is the grip that is most common if you're grabbing a pocket, Um, although you do sometimes have to crimp on shallow pockets, but deeper pockets, especially like pockets found on indoor climbing walls or on limestone crags, 
Often you're hanging open-handed on with your fingers nearly fully extended, and the DIP and PIP joints are, are flexed just slightly. You know, the angle may only be 10 or 20 degrees at each of those two joints. And so those much softer angles decrease the load on the tendon pulleys. Those are safer grip positions in terms of the force placed on the A2 and A4 pulleys. And by the way, for people with growth plate injuries, uh, youth climbers, that open hand grip is the safest to climb and train on because there's very little shearing on that growth plate uh, at the PIP joint when you're in that open hand grip. And then a third grip position that you do want to train on the hangboard is halfway between the half crimp and the open hand grip positions that I just discussed. And most people call this in-between position open crimp because basically your two long fingers, your middle finger and your ring finger, are still in the half crimp position or a little softer version of the half crimp position. But the PIP joint of the two long fingers is still flexed significantly, perhaps between 100 and 120 degrees or so. But the shorter fingers, your pinky and index finger, are more or less in more of an open hand grip position. So it's kind of a hybrid, halfway between the half crimp and open hand position. And so this open crimp position is one that you are both pretty strong in, but still kind of a relatively safe position to train in. And so it's uh, one of the principal, you know, one of the three grip positions that's great to train. And a lot of climbers at the crag, if you're on those long resistance climbs, end up using a lot of this hybrid open crimp grip. And so it's just for that reason, a grip you want to train if it's something you're going to use frequently at the crags. Again, the goal on a hangboard is to train in a safe way to reduce the risk of injury in training. Remember rule number one of Eric's train club? It's don't get injured. So again, we want to train in a way that is hopefully pretty safe and reduces in injury risk, but also one that's effective and targets specific grip positions so that you can get stronger in them and develop more endurance in them. And so on a hangboard, no matter what protocol you're using, whether it's a max strength protocol or a strength endurance protocol, it's good to do a full set in one grip position so that you can kind of target uh, a specific grip, whether it's half crimp, open crimp, or open hand, you need to train all three of them. And it's also good to do some testing to see, you know, do you have a weakness? You know, back in the early days of sport climbing, before indoor walls and indoor climbing holds were just ubiquitous, back in the old days, you know, my generation, we tended to be more crimp climbers because that was the nature of climbing, was vertical, crimpy kind of routes. And so, our open hand strength tended to be pretty weak when we had to grab open hand. It felt awkward and we weren't so strong at it. I think today's climbers might almost be the other way around because if you grow up climbing in a gym, you're grabbing lots of slopers and open hand pockets and you get quite strong at that. And perhaps maybe you're not so good. Your strength endurance isn't so high in the half crimp position or open crimp position. 
So again, you have to kind of find your strengths and weaknesses and train them. And of course, I don't want to overlook the need to do some training of pinch grip of the muscles uh, in your thumb that control your thumb and enable you to pinch and even the muscles, the lumbricals in your hand. Comprehensive training is important, uh, especially as you get into the higher grades. Uh, nuance is so, so important. That word nuance I use, I know a lot in my podcast, but uh, it is kind of the key to effective training in the long term. Okay, uh, one thing I don't want to overlook here is the results of some of the research. And it, it was uh, Vigoro, uh, a French researcher out of Marseille, who has done a lot of different studies on fingers and finger force over the last 10 or 15 years. And uh, using biomechanical models and also some data with climbers, he's come up with some very interesting numbers. And first of all, when you are using a half crimp grip, okay, so when your PIP joint is bent at around 90 degrees, as is typical in a crimping situation or crimping grip position, the tendon, the flexor tendon that connects to that most distal bone in your fingers and that flexes the DIP joint carries two times more force than the flexor tendon that connects to the second bone or that middle bone in your finger. Uh, and so those flexor tendons and muscles, the one that connects to the distal bone and flexes the DIP joint, is called the FDP, the flexor digitorum profundus. That is the muscle in your form, and that's the name of the tendon that connects to that distal bone. And then the flexor muscle and tendon that connects to the middle bone and flexes the PIP joint, that's the flexor digitorum superficialis muscle that flexes that, that middle joint. So when you're crimping, certainly both of those flexor tendons and both of those finger flexor muscles in your forearm are generating force, are contracting, are pulling to keep both of those joints active. But it's the flexor digitorum profundus that flexes the distal joint that is providing about two-thirds of the total force onto the crimp hold whereas the FDS tendon that flexes the middle joint is only contributing about one-third of the total force. So kind of the bottom line is when you're training a crimp grip, you are training the FDP muscle, the flexor digitorum profundus, the most. Or let's put it this way, if you're on a route and you really need to pull on a crimp to do the move, it is the FDP muscle that is the one you really want to have strong. Although the FDS muscle is contributing still about one-third of the force. Now, let's turn the tables and go to the open hand grip, kind of the other end of the spectrum, as I put it. And in that grip, those two tendons, the FDP and the FDS, that flex the distal joint and the uh, PIP joint, respectively, they are contributing force almost equally. And so that open hand grip, it kind of spreads the force load out on two different muscles and the two different flexor tendons. Well, that's a good thing, especially for endurance climbs. And this is one reason that I guess, again, when you get on those longer resistance routes, it you feel better. You can endure longer, the better you can open hand and split the force on the two different muscles equally. And so when you're doing open hand training, you have to remember you're training the muscles 
in a little different way. Those two finger flexor muscles in your forms are contributing equally when you're training in open hand positions, but the more crimpy your grip is, the more the FDP finger flexor tendon is being recruited and the less the FDS finger tendon that flexes the middle joint of your fingers is contributing. And so the bottom line is you need to train both ways to kind of cover all of your bases. If you just train half crimp grip, if you favor the crimp position constantly as a climber, you aren't going to develop the strength sharing, I guess you might say, between the two finger flexor muscles that is needed for the open hand grip. And of course, vice versa, if you constantly climb open-handed and only train open-handed, well, then you're never going to fully train up that FDP flexor tendon that is most active during crimp grip positions. So yes, if you're injured, well, then you need to train in the appropriate way to kind of train around your injury until you're recovered. But if you're a healthy climber, you need to train both grip positions open hand and half crimp. And honestly, I think you need to train the open crimp as well, kind of that in-between position with some dedicated sets on uh, crimp edges with the open crimp grip. One final little factoid uh, based on the research of Vigro. He was able to get some numbers on the forces applied to the A2 and the A4 pulley and uh, take measurements in the different grip positions. And what is startling is the high forces placed on the A2 and A4 pulley when you're crimping on the order of about 200 newtons placed on both the A2 and the A4 pulley. Whereas simply shifting into an open hand grip position and hanging on a hold the exact same size, those forces were dramatically reduced. In fact, on the A4 pulley reduced to about uh, just over 50 newtons, and on the A2 pulley, reduced to less than 10 newtons. So when you really open hand on a sloper or on a pocket, you are dramatically reducing the force placed on your pulleys, especially the A2 pulley. It's being reduced by like more than 90% when you hang open hand versus when you're crimping. And so again, if you're someone prone to A2 pulley injuries, you want to do limited crimping and certainly be weary of the most stressful crimp positions and be even more weary of crimp moves where your feet might unexpectedly cut out because that unexpected shock loading onto a crimp grip is the situation that unfortunately has been known to produce A2 pulley tears. Okay, so moving on, now let's take a little different angle. Let's look at the uh, muscles uh, on both sides of your forearms and the potential imbalances that can result. You know, if you climb for a few years or certainly if you hangboard train, your finger flexors will get stronger. I mean, there's plenty of research out there that has quantified uh, how much strength gains you can get out of a hangboard training program, especially that first time doing it. You can get some significant gains out of your first kind of cycle of hangboard training. And then after that, things slow down and you have to get uh, more novel and nuanced with your training to elicit slow 
but hopefully steady uh, gains into the future. All the while, what about the opposing muscles, the antagonist muscles? And again, some research we're going to uh, draw on here. Uh, a group of researchers, kind of, a, I guess, a variety of studies kind of uh, pulled together on this topic, including Vigoro and uh, Burton and a few other uh, European researchers. Uh, they did some biomechanical modeling of the hand and took some measurements and I believe some EMG studies as well to kind of see how active uh, and how much recruitment was done of various muscles in different situations. And kind of a couple of the take-home points here is, first of all, comparing climbers to non-climbers. Well, of course, when they looked at those climbing muscles, those finger flexor muscles in the forearm, the FDP and the FDS, that flex the DIP and PIP joint, just as we discussed, climbers on average were 40% stronger in those two muscles than non-climbers. But here's what's interesting. When they looked at the extensor digitorum superficialis, that's one of the finger extensor muscles on the lateral aspect of your forearm, climbers and non-climbers were virtually the same. So there was very little development, really no additional development in the climbers in terms of those extensor muscles. In fact, a few climbers were found to have actually a decrease in that antagonist muscle activation, which is actually not uncommon for there to be a, a little bit of deactivation of those muscles. It's one of the sport-specific adaptations you would get if you're training finger flexors is to deactivate, to some degree, those extensor muscles, particularly when using the open hand grip. But long-term, in terms of injury prevention and uh, joint stability and just functional movement, you would want to see there being less of a differential between the agonist and antagonist muscles. And so uh, the findings of these studies kind of support the idea that climbers need to do more antagonist muscle training, training of those finger extensor muscles. And of course, there's other antagonist muscles in the upper body that should be addressed as well, but we're not going to go there right now. So what types of things am I talking about? Well, I think most climbers, if they've been around or read up a little bit, or even just have seen on the internet now, these different finger extensor exercises you can do with rubber bands. Some of them are glorified rubber bands with little slots for your fingers to fit in. And those types of things are excellent as warm-up tools to do before climbing, before training. Uh, certainly, they're likely to be beneficial in rehab situations. But in terms of bringing about significant strengthening of the finger extensor muscles, I'm not convinced that they're a very useful tool. If you're doing heavy-weighted fingerboard work and bouldering V10, is the resistance that you get from a rubber band for the antagonist muscles really enough to bring about significant adaptations anywhere even in the ballpark of what you're getting from your hangboard and climbing training? I think not. And so that's where you need to do something with a little more resistance, a little more force, and ideally something that can produce more of an isometric or negative contraction at a higher load. And so where I'm going with this is, and I'm sure many of you listening to this are thinking reverse wrist curls with a dumbbell might be a good exercise. 
And yes, it is a step in the right direction. I don't think it's the best exercise, but it's a step in the right direction. Uh, what many climbers do is use a five or 10 pound dumbbell and do with their palm facing down, reverse wrist curls, going from the neutral position up to the uh, wrist extended position and back down. And perhaps you do 20 repetitions with a moderately light dumbbell, and that will generate some fatigue. But I don't think that's the best exercise. You want to make it one step better, use a heavier dumbbell, maybe 20 or 30 pounds if you're really strong, and hold the dumbbell in the extended position, like the top position of a reverse wrist curl, and hold it there for 30 seconds, or slowly lower it to a count of 30 seconds. And that has been shown to be a more beneficial exercise for strengthening the extensor muscles and actually um, breaking some crosslinks in the collagen, in the tendon near the elbow, the tendon that can be very problematic for climbers that get lateral elbow pain or lateral tendonitis. Doing a few sets of those slow negatives or isometric holds is a better exercise than the rubber band or the light dumbbell reverse wrist curl. And taking it one step further, I personally think the best exercise is to do some wide pinching isometric holds. Uh, again, kind of as I described earlier in the podcast, if you're standing straight up with good posture, hands by your side, and pinching a block or some other object that has your fingers Fully extended, I'm talking about pinching something that could be four or five, even six inches wide if you have long fingers. I've set up a stack of two by four blocks, three across, that give me about a nice five inch wide pinch that I can then hang weights from and hold, say, a 20 or 25 pound weight with that wide pinch grip for 30 seconds or so. And two things, that wide pinch position when standing upright with your arms at your side places your wrist in the extended position as it would be in climbing and grabbing a pinch or a tufa, or in extending your wrist when you're kind of chicken winging on a crimp. Those positions with that wrist extended and with the fingers activated makes it most specific to climbing, and I think gives you a beneficial isometric contraction on those extensor muscles. And so I do a blend of both the dumbbell work, where I hold a fairly heavy dumbbell in a slow negative or isometric contraction, and some pinch work at my sides. And the pinch work is often kind of a two birds with one stone kind of thing, where I'm training the muscles in my hand that control the thumb and making my pinching muscle groups stronger at the same time I'm actually doing some beneficial antagonist work for the extensor muscles of the fingers. So there you have a few ideas, some things to experiment, to play around with. Uh, all of these exercises are described in my book, Training for Climbing, third edition with Alex Megos on the cover. Pick up a copy if you don't have one, because it covers pretty much everything under the sun when it comes to climbing performance. Some people have called it a Bible of training for climbing, but I won't go quite that far. But I appreciate the compliment. Okay, so as a final thought, 
if you're fingerboard training, and if for that matter you're climbing regularly and you really care about your climbing, then you owe it to yourself to do some of this antagonist training to train up those uh, finger extensor muscles to try to maintain some sense of balance between your flexors and extensors, not only in your forearms, but the other muscles of your upper body as well, that, you know, the various pushing muscles. And I've talked before about the importance of the rotator cuff muscles and such. Uh, a comprehensive training program is the one that is going to bring you long-term gains and longevity in this sport. So, why not start today? Okay, kind of on the home stretch here, just some items here to wrap things up. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm not going to get into specific fingerboard training protocols. There are several out there that have been popularized uh, based on a couple of research studies you know, by Ava Lopez and the Anderson brothers. If you read a book like My Training for Climbing or some of the other good books out there, you'll be introduced to some other fingerboard training protocols and ways to train with two hands and one hand and with an assister sling. But, you know, there's really no one best fingerboard training protocol. And anybody who tells you there is, is wrong. You know, you have to have the right tool for the job. For example, if you want to train up your crimp strength or open hand strength, well then doing maximum weight two-handed hangs on a 14 or 20 millimeter hold is probably the most effective base training. However, at some point you'll get so strong that the weight added will get too high and then you'll want to graduate to assisted one-arm or even weighted one-arm hangs. If you want to train endurance, well, repeaters, like seven-second hang, three-second recovery, doing six of those in a row over the course of one minute, has been shown to be very effective in developing strength endurance. If you want to train the aerobic energy system, that very submaximal extended finger flexion and contraction that's often overlooked by climbers, well, you can do that on a climbing wall. Certainly, I've talked about how to do it in my previous podcast on energy system training. But on a hangboard, you really need a counterweight system to deload significantly. So you're working at just around 30% of your maximum finger force. Or you could rest your feet on a chair or a wood strip on the wall and move your hands around the board, what we often refer to as moving hangs. Those would be effective ways of, of training aerobic endurance, but you need to understand the protocols, what they are training, and then ultimately know how to design that all into an effective program. What isn't so effective is kind of that shotgun approach that I've talked about in the past, where you're doing a little bit of everything. You don't want to try to train maximum grip strength, and then strength endurance, and then aerobic endurance all in one session that is not effective. Now, a beginner or even an early intermediate climber can do almost anything and get gains out of it. You know, you walk into the gym and climb or do anything in the name of climbing, you're probably going to get a little better as a beginner. But as you advance, as you get stronger, you need to have more and more nuance and you need to train in an increasingly targeted way that zeroes in on your limiting constraint on the one aspect, the one thing that is most holding you back, or the one thing that you most need for your project route, that boulder or sport route that you really want to send. And so that speaks to 
having a more intelligent approach to your climbing, seeing the big picture of what your goals are, but then being able to focus in today, right now, what is the one thing I can do to make myself a better climber? And so I would propose that uh, for more advanced climbers, every day you walk into the gym, you should have a plan. You should know what that one thing is or two or three things are that you need to focus on. You know, it might include flexibility. It might include working on technique, becoming a more efficient climber, or improving your mental game. I mean, climbing such a complex sport. There are many ways to improve, but for the advanced or elite or rock star climber, you've whittled away most of those things. And so kind of finding the one remaining thing or the few small remaining things is challenging. And that's where a veteran coach, someone who really understands the science of climbing and knows how to prescribed training can hopefully help you achieve your project or achieve the next grade. But again, if you're a beginner, you probably don't need any expensive or high-end exercise testing. You need to learn to climb. You need to just build general fitness. And then as you become an intermediate, get into more specific targeted training. That would include some hangboard training. If you're an intermediate climber, well then yes, some testing and some program design and some targeted fingerboard training and other types of training are an important part of the process. And then again, that, that more advanced or pro climber, that's where it gets more complicated and tougher to suss out just what are the things you need to do. But I'll tell you, the one thing that you do need to do if you're one of those elite climbers is to climb a lot and train a lot. Uh, that is just part of the brain training that goes on. I've talked about the central governor, or if you've never heard of that, pick up training for climbing and read about the central governor. The brain, how it controls ultimately your high-end strength and your endurance, and sometimes achieving a goal, like Tommy Caldwell sending Dawn Wall, or Adam Andra sending Silence, comes down to not only having everything dialed in physically, but having your brain become dialed into letting you do it. And I'm not so much talking about the psychological aspects, though that is part of the game too, but I'm talking about the brain allowing your muscles to perform at the highest. You know, you hear about that kind of the urban legend of the grandmother who lifts the car off her trapped son, you know, uh, that superhuman strength that is released in an instant. And although perhaps that's a bit of an exaggeration, that type of thing can happen in certain situations. If through long-term training, you've recalibrated your brain to allow you to express higher power and greater endurance. You know, sometimes some of the greatest feats, physical feats, come where you are able to push through that boundary and have the brain let you perform up to your potential. And so that is some of the kind of long-term conditioning. I'm talking decades that climbing year over year and taking your training and the volume to a higher and higher level each year. Think about people like Honold and Segrist, Gustafi, Schubert, Megos, and Andra. And similarly, the strong ladies like Yanya and Jessica, Anka, Margot, and Alex Puccio, just to name a few, 
Top women climbers like these are out there month over month, training and pushing the limits. Yes, there are physical adaptations that are allowing them to continue to progress, but there also are adaptations in the brain that aren't fully understood, but I have no doubt that are taking place, that are part of the process. So I guess the closing thought here that should hopefully be empowering is that although strength gains come quickly at first and slowly later on and oftentimes painfully slow or frustratingly slow in the long term, there are other adaptations that play out over the course of decades, some of them physical, some of them mental, some of them neurological, that can help you continue to improve in this sport in the long term. And of course, the wild card all along is staying uninjured. And it's a rare climber that experiences zero injuries. It almost doesn't happen in such a rigorous, demanding, and uniquely stressful sport as we're all involved in. But things that you can do day in and day out to lower injury risk would be a very wise part of your training program. And that includes lifestyle and nutrition and just the whole family of things that you do under the name of training that uh, come into play. And those are some of the things I'm going to get into in the next couple of podcasts, uh, starting off in January in the new year. We're going to break some new ground. We're going to take a look at things that you can do to strengthen tendons, to make your joints more bulletproof, to provide more stiffness into the system. You know, we're so focused on making the engine stronger, that is the contractile fibers, the, the contractile proteins in our muscles, that we can't overlook that it's the transmitting of force from muscle to tendon to bone that ultimately leads to us being able to apply force to the rock with our fingers and climb. And so a more efficient muscle tendon unit is one that can apply more force more quickly to the holds and that will open up the next grade for you. And so it's some exciting stuff I can't wait to get to, but you're going to have to wait a few weeks for us to get there. But it's something to look forward to in the new year. So a reminder, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I have a new hangboard out. It's called the Ultimate Hangboard. Please do visit my website, trainingforclimbing.com, to learn more and to actually see a video of the hangboard in use. I have an introduction to the Ultimate Board video there that I posted on YouTube a few days ago, so please do check that out. And if you'd like to order the board at discount through the holiday season, visit nicros.com. Oh, and I almost forgot. This is the Christmas season or the holiday season, and if you have a climber in your life that you'd like to buy an affordable little gift for, visit trainingforclimbing.com because I have a slew of excellent books. Not only my books, but the books from the Gimme Craft franchise in Germany. Uh, they're bilingual books, so yes, if you only read English, you can enjoy and learn from these books. I have Jerry Moffat's Mastermind and also the Gimme Craft book written by Patrick Matros and Dickie Korb, uh, the coaches of Alex Megos. And so if you haven't seen those books, check them out on my website, as well as all the other books that I've written. And so if you've not heard or seen those books, check out trainingforclimbing.com, click the Buy Books tab, and you'll see a list of all the different books that I have available on my website, including the different Gimme Craft books. I have two books written on injuries, and then, of course, the various training books that I've written over the last 
several years. Of course, I'd appreciate if you'd like this article, like this podcast, share it with three friends. And if you're an iTunes user, or I guess they call it Apple Podcast now, go in and please do leave a review. If you love this podcast, please leave a five-star review. I really appreciate that. Uh, I put a lot of work into these podcasts, and the price is right, right? <laughs> They're coming at you for free, uh, and so uh, I'd really appreciate you helping spread the word about the podcast and so that we can grow this audience each and every month. Uh, an audience which I'm so psyched to be such a large international audience. Uh, one of the beauties of climbing is that it transcends religion and politics and region, ethnicity, you name it. Uh, climbing, the spirit of climbing is something that I guess they say now more than 25 million people worldwide now share and it's a really beautiful thing. And so that's a great closing note here uh, in the holiday season. I wish each of you a wonderful end to 2018 and hopefully an even better and more rewarding 2019. And I may have a final end of year podcast, just a brief one for you right around uh, that final week of December. So take a look for that. And then in the new year, in early January, we'll launch with the next series of podcasts, which I think you're going to enjoy immensely. So that does it for this episode of the Training for Climbing podcast. I hope you really enjoyed it. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and train on.